Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So for those of you who are visiting with us, you've come in an exciting time. We are right in the middle of the book of Revelation, and it has been quite a journey so far. And today we're going to talk about the seals, the seals. That's right. It's going to be a good morning here. No, no, not those seals. Although they're awful cute, aren't they? Yeah. And not those seals. Important, but not those seals either. Uh, We're going to talk about these bizarre seals that we see in Revelation 6, 7, and 8. Our scripture this morning is in the middle of 7. It's actually between the 6th and the 7th seals. So I'm going to have to orient us to that point uh, by walking us through part of what we didn't read this morning. Uh, And my manuscript is about a page and a half longer than normal. So if you have, if you have lunch plans, I know that's like an old preacher joke, but you might want to adjust them a little bit. Uh, We'll do what we can. But there's so much to say here. And it's, it's the breaking of the seals that many people and many preachers stop reading and studying and preaching the book of Revelation because it's, it's like that roller coaster I talked about a few weeks ago. We were still climbing, okay? Well, this is the top of the hill. From this point forward, it is fast-paced. There are many details. It is a wild journey. And in some ways, it gets more challenging to interpret, So you'll have to be gracious with me as we try to walk through these things. Again, there may be things, details that we disagree about, but there's a lot there. And so I want to offer you just at least one perspective on those things. And I wonder if the breaking of the seals isn't a bad place. I think it's it's a terrible place to stop because it's here that we begin to understand what's happening in our world. The breaking of the seals, we can see it as kind of interpreting the world in which we live, because things are not only as they seem. They're not only as they seem. There's more to our present reality than we can perceive with our five senses. There's more to the flow of history than the most insightful sociologist or historian can explain to us. This is the message of the apocalyptic prophetic vision, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The pastoral purpose of this book is to reveal this hidden layer to us, this deeper dimension in life. And as challenging and as overwhelming as that may be, it's important. It's important for us. The unveiling, the apocalypse, Jesus again is rolling back. He's peeling back the window into heaven just a little bit to our brother John who has shared this incredible vision to us to remind us to shake us out of our spiritual lethargy to remind us that there is more going on than we perceive with our senses and we want to be awakened to that real reality so that we can live in to the eternal kingdom of God beginning today even though we do that imperfectly this side of heaven It's all really there to encourage us to be faithful to the finish, to remind us of God's faithfulness in which we live, and that will enable us to be faithful. So last week, Pastor Colin walked us through chapter 5. It contains an incredible throne room scene, and we saw there the Father on the throne, and in his right hand, a scroll. The scroll 
of history, the sovereign plans and purposes and mind of God. And securing the scroll are seven seals. And these seals are are not there because they're trying to keep the message secret. After all, there's writing on both sides of the scroll. It's not a secret message. The seals are there to identify the authenticity of the message. That was the purpose of a seal in those days. It was placed on a message so that only the rightful person would be able to receive that message, the person who was in the position to do so. And the only one found to open these seals we saw last week is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He's the Lamb slain for the sins of the world. And as the Lamb opens these seven seals, each contains a unique situation to be unleashed on the world. Now, there are many different views on the seals and what follows. Some understand them as past events that have already happened. Others see that they are future events yet to happen. Many people see kind of a combination of past and present and future. Some believe that what we have here in the the tribulation is a finite seven-year period of cataclysmic judgment before the return of Christ. So which is it? What's the timing? What's happening here? When are these seals occurring? Perspective that I've found to be most helpful. Again, you may not share it with me, but I think you can appreciate it, whether you're a person who is more, reads it as the past or in the future. What I've come to see is that the book of Revelation has this kind of sense of always being present and and that the messages contained therein are read by people in such a way that, that when we read them, we sense that this is what's happening right now in our world. I think that's how the original audience would have understood it. They would have said, they wouldn't have said, oh, the tribulation, that must be something that's going to happen in 2134. I just made that up, okay? I'm not predicting when he's coming back, okay? But they would not have, they wouldn't have thought that way, I don't think. They would have read it and said, yeah, this describes our world today. And so I think this view does the greatest justice to an even broader important concept in Scripture that we've talked about here before, and that is the already not yet kingdom of God. See, you have to understand, when I read the book of Revelation, I'm reading it through this lens of the already not yet kingdom. When Jesus came to the earth, he proclaimed that his kingdom is here. It's now. It's among you. Right? Jesus said, the kingdom has arrived. And yet we also understand, as we continue reading in Scripture, that the fullness of that kingdom is not here yet. So where we find ourselves is living in this tension between experiencing the kingdom of God somewhat, a little bit, we might say. We see dimly, right, Paul wrote, and yet we have this future kingdom reality of the fullness of the kingdom of God, and that's where we're headed. We're in the middle of this Tension. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I think this has everything to do with how we understand the events of Revelation. So let's think about the term tribulation in the New Testament. The word, it means pressure. More specifically, crushing pressure. It is a pressure that comes when two forces come together. That's what this word, tribulation, means. The best illustration is a common geological phenomenon, or at least one we have here in Oklahoma. Beneath the earth's surface are tectonic plates, huge masses of rock that slowly, constantly move. 
Now, I don't understand all this. I'm speaking to matters that are way above my pay grade. But we understand that when these plates collide against one another, the result is what? An earthquake. And we literally have thousands of them every year in Oklahoma. In fact, there's many more than that. They just don't register on our scales. But if you go online, they have a site where you can see every earthquake that's happened in Oklahoma. And there was over 2,000 measurable ones last year. But sometimes, so these plates, they're always moving. They're in tension. They're in friction. But sometimes we really feel it. Like a week ago, Saturday, close to midnight. How many of you felt that? Right? Some of you were awake and felt it. I was asleep. It woke me up. I thought it was thunder at first. Maybe my kids. I mean, I don't know what this is. It's an earthquake. And we experienced them. And that one was really small compared to the really big ones. I, was, I, was, I experienced one a couple of years ago out east that, was, that shook the whole house. It was unbelievable. And this crushing pressure of tribulation is created when kingdoms clash, when the kingdom of God invades the world and comes up against the kingdoms of this world that unfortunately we far too often participate in. You see, we're people who find ourselves living in this tension. And we have one foot in the kingdom of God, and we have one foot in many of these other kingdoms, including the kingdom of self. Right? That's why the seven deadly sins was such a challenging series. It represents that tension between what we were created for and yet our lives, and the tension between the two, the gap there. And that's where the gospel is coming in to fill in those gaps. And so when does this tribulation take place? Well, perhaps it's a finite event. Maybe there will be a heightening of some of these realities at the end. I'm not totally sure. But I think in John's mind, tribulation began when Jesus came into the world. This tribulation he's talking about is when the kingdom of God comes in and like an earthquake, there's friction. There's this pressure created by the kingdom coming in and invading a kingdom that is broken by sin creates a sense of tribulation. It's for this reason that I see these seals not just as some kind of finite event, but describing, being indicative of the environment of the world, what we are living in. I think if we reduce the situation to just future finite events, we miss the impact that it would have had on the original audience. We miss out on something that there is for us. And I think we also are reading the scripture only through our lenses of being in a very comfortable time and place in history. Because I think when most people read these realities, and they read, as we're going to talk about in a minute, about this dream of heaven where no one is hungry and no one goes without clean water, they would say, my goodness, that sounds like a wonderful dream. Because that's not the world they were living in. It's not the world that most people today even are living in. I think sometimes when we read and we think, oh, okay, the revelation, wow, that seems so wild and so foreign. All that violence and injustice, that's got to be something that's out there that's not happening right now. I think we're reading from a very myopic view, from only from our limited perspective. If we continue to read the number seven as symbolic, which I do and you may not, but if we're consistent in that, then this seven-year tribulation could be more broadly descriptive of the entire church age. In other words, we are living in tribulation. 
Maybe there'll be a greater one. Maybe other events have happened in the past that were more uh, sort of acute. But I think this word tribulation describes the world we live in, doesn't it? People say, oh, pastor, you know, we see these signs, wars and rumors of wars and all these kinds of things. Yes, but is our situation really that unique? It's easier to read the Great Tribulation as a future event if you're very comfortable. It's, it's easy to be convinced that the tribulation will be something that Christians will be exempt from when you haven't experienced a lot of suffering. No, I don't think we're exempt from tribulation. And even if it is a seven-year future literal tribulation, I don't think Christians get to escape from it. Sorry, Left Behind series. Sorry, not sorry, right? And again, if you see it that way, that's fine. We're going to be in heaven. We'll figure it out then or we won't care. But it doesn't make sense to me that God would take Christians out of suffering. Christians have always had to experience suffering. Jesus said you will have trouble in this world. Christians are not exempt from the pressure that's created by the kingdom of God coming into contact with the kingdoms of this world. We all experience that pressure and that frustration. So let's release the seals. The first six that come before our reading passage this morning. The first four are what's known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This image is adapted from Zechariah. Much of what comes in Revelation is not new material. We get a lot of the prophetic writings. Uh, There's a lot of foundation in the book of Exodus, etc. Daryl Johnson makes a good case that the four horsemen represent what happens when Jesus and his kingdom begin to press in on the world. Even the number four, it's symbolic. Remember, that's the number of earthly things. We have four winds. We have four cardinal directions. We have four seasons. The number four is the things of this earth. And so these four horsemen represent what happens in the world when we experience tribulation, when we don't go the way of the Lamb. There's a resistance that results in misery and judgment. So the first seal says that if we don't go the way of the Lamb, there will be greater and greater conflict and the drive to conquer. Does that sound like history? Does that sound like today? Seal 2 says if we don't go the way of the Lamb, there will be greater and greater violence. That's our world. Seal 3, there will be greater and greater injustice. That's our world. Seal 4, greater and greater suffering and death. And perhaps even the four colors of the horses are symbolic. White, the symbol of conquest. Red, of blood. Pale, the color of sickness and famine. And black, the color of death. In other words, these four seals, these four horses, they are indicative of this world in which we live that is broken by sin, that is not going the way of the Lamb, that is experiencing the earthquake, the shaking that is caused by the tension of two kingdoms colliding. In the fifth seal, it goes a little bit different direction, and John sees underneath the altar those who died in faithfulness to the Lamb, the martyrs. Again, John's audience. He's writing to people who knew people who this had already been their experience. We know that even today, many people dying for their faith. Why are they underneath the altar? Well, because that's where the blood of the animal sacrificed on the altar ends. 
He's saying to those of you, even to death, who are faithful to the Lamb, your life, your testimony is a sacrificial worship to the King of Heaven. Even when things don't seem to be going well, there is one who is on the throne who sees everything that happens and will bring justice. With the coming of the sixth seal, John speaks of a great earthquake and stars falling from the sky, literally heaven and earth falling apart at the shaking, the tribulation that is happening when kingdoms collide against one another. This imagery is used throughout the Bible to portray historical crises or even more commonly the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It seems in the sixth seal that judgment is being imposed from within, that God is taking his hands off and quite literally all hell breaks loose. It's as though God is saying, you want to be your own God? Okay, I will step back and let you try to hold it all together. This is what happens And we defy the kingship of the king. And we want to go the opposite way, not the way of the lamb. The bottom line is that all things were created by him, Jesus, through him and for him. And whether it's an individual's life or the entire created order, when you take Jesus out of the equation, the whole thing falls apart. I think that's the underlying message of the seals. You see all the chaos in the book of Revelation? We try to unpack it all, and we can't even understand all of the images. The bottom line is, when you take Jesus out of the equation, when you don't go the way of the Lamb, this is what John's saying, it's Jesus' message to us, everything falls apart. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Even the created order is groaning and longing for redemption. Sounds a lot like Paul in Romans, yeah? groaning, even the created order longs to be redeemed. At each point when a seal is broken, a group cries out in simple prayer. The breaking of the first four seals, the four living creatures cry out in prayer, come. The calling for the lamb on the throne to come and establish his kingdom. This is the cry that moves history. You don't think prayer matters? It matters. We see it, the cry, Come. This is what we pray when we pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying, God, would your kingdom reality overtake and swallow up all this mess? Would you come and would you fix all that is broken? At the opening of the fifth seal, the prayer of the martyrs is, how long, sovereign Lord? A very common prayer throughout Scripture. When will you come and avenge our wrongful death? And at the opening of the sixth seal, the heart of the prayer is, hide us from your wrath. Who can withstand the wrath of God? That's the prayer. And that's an important question. That's really the question, I think, that frames what we've just read here this morning from chapter 7. It falls in an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seals. It's here we find that only those who have been sealed by the Lamb can endure the wrath of God. That's the answer. The sealed. Those who have been sealed by the Lamb. Chapter 7, verse 2. Who is able to stand? Those who make it through are those who are marked with the seal of the living God. What does it mean to be sealed? Well, in the Bible, a seal communicates ownership and protection. 
The background of this is Exodus 12. The one who is marked will be spared the judgment of God. The houses with the mark and the blood of the lamb will be passed over and spared judgment. This idea of marking, of sealing. Those who are sealed are spared. Those who have been sealed with the blood of the lamb are protected and it enables enduring faith. Now, there's this number here, 144,000. People made a lot of it or a little of it, whatever. It's a number. I see it as symbolic. Some people have understood it literally. Some think it applies more specifically to Jews and that the later vision to Christians, I'm not totally certain. But it is certainly a multiple of 12, and we've talked about that. We talked about 12 thrones and 12 thrones, 24, right? Being the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. So this multiple of 12, it tends to communicate the fullness of God's people. In other words, who will be sealed? All those that God draws into his family. That's who. Not a single one will be left out. It's a whole number. It's a perfect number. It's a big number. Complete. And what is the seal? Well, in the New Covenant era, the seal is the Holy Spirit. The seal is the Holy Spirit. How do you know that you're in Christ? Well, there's a number of markers, right? They'll know us by our love for one another. But the seal in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, 2 Corinthians, it says those who are sealed in their salvation by the Holy Spirit are in Christ. The Spirit is the seal, the guarantee, the marker of a life that is being changed by God. The deposit guaranteeing our salvation in Christ. And the presence of the Spirit leaves us secure, but not safe. Not exempt. Not spared from the rumblings and the pressure of two kingdoms colliding. So those who are sealed by the Lamb are saved by the Lamb. Verse 9, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. This aspect of the vision highlights the scope of the gospel. This was the command of Jesus that we would go to the ends of the earth. And John sees here the multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual, robust, complete church of Jesus Christ, worshiping before the throne of God. It's a beautiful image. In the anticipation, in the end, people from every nation, this word here means ethnicity, from every ethnicity will worship God and the Lamb. It's not just a dream for the future. It constitutes a mission that Jesus gave us as his followers. We have a mandate to reach all kinds of people with the gospel. And so if our churches are not multi-ethnic and our communities are, then that means we've failed in a certain aspect to live into that vision. It poses the question, who are we not reaching? And not just people who are far, but in the EPC, we've kind of narrowed this. So we have a, we have a, a commission of people who are working on this, helping teach and train our churches. We just had a presbytery meeting to talk about how do we better do this. And this is not about being politically correct. It's not about meeting certain quotas. It's about being people who live into the Great Commission, who say, look, if our church doesn't even reflect people who live within a one-mile radius of our building, we're failing to reach people. Who's not here? 
right? And that doesn't diminish who is here. We're not saying we're not glad you, that you are, aren't here. We're not saying that. But we're saying who's not here? Who, who could be in these empty seats? And there's a proximity. God has called us to a place in a certain place. Now, I understand the barriers to that. I understand the human aspects of sin that make that difficult. We just, by the grace of God, want to say, hey, if, if this is what heaven's going to look like, then maybe our church, which is a foretaste, designed to be a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like, maybe by the grace of God we could pray and we could take action to try to make our church a better foretaste of heaven. Amen? Amen. Those who are saved and sealed by the Lamb. Verse 14. He said, those who have come out of the great tribulation. You notice that language? Those who have come out of, meaning they were in it. Just saying, okay? So if you're a pre-trib, you got to deal with that verse. There's other ones that I have to deal with. But if you believe the people of God get taken away before the tribulation, it says they came out of the tribulation, out from it. They've washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This metaphor is striking. It's paradoxical. How do you wash something in red and it comes out white? Miracle, right? The blood of Jesus. We just, our pathway students led us incredibly this morning into worship around this very idea. It's conveyed by the words of the old hymn, there's a fountain filled with blood. That's an intense image, right? Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Praise the Lord. Those who are sealed by the Lamb are saved by the Lamb and ultimately will be satisfied by the Lamb. That's where this vision goes. It tells us that we will be satisfied. And maybe you find yourself getting lost in some of the details of the book of Revelation. Here's the thing. Most of the details are around God's judgment. It's true. It seems like most of the details are around his judgment. If you, don't want, if you want to just not have to figure out what all that means... Here's the path, right? The, the lamb, to be sealed by the lamb, to be saved by the blood of the lamb, and ultimately to find your satisfaction in the lamb. And how will we, we be satisfied? We'll be satisfied in our purpose, which is worship. We will do what we do today imperfectly, in a broken way, with mixed motives, with hearts that are you know, already ready to go to lunch. You know, it's, it's fine. We, we do it imperfectly. But one day we will join together in worship and praise and enjoyment of God. We'll join together with voices with the multitudes gathered from all times and places. Maybe you're not a crowd's people, but there's something powerful about gathering together with a large group of people and lifting your voices together. Isn't that amazing? Just to think about doing that in heaven. And yet... We want to eliminate any views that heaven will be boring or dull, okay? Whatever, wherever you came up with these ideas, some people are like, is heaven going to be just like one really long church service? (laughs) Seriously, I think people have come to that. I I don't know who's teaching them that, but that's the conclusion some people have come to. No, 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 no. It says, it says here, verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. We're going to serve in the kingdom of God. We're going to have jobs to do. We're going to have work to do. Work is a good thing. 
right? We're going to, we, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about heaven. It really doesn't. You think about how long the Bible is, how many words we get. We get so little about heaven. Why is that? Because we can't contain it. It would blow our minds. That's what I think. But what do we get? There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to eat in heaven. We're going to enjoy, we're going to, heaven is, look, it's much more dynamic than we can imagine. And we have no idea, but it's not just going to be one big, long, boring worship service. I'm pretty sure of that. It will not be boring. We will serve in the house of God. And so when we serve today, we're getting a foretaste of what we were created to do. We were created to serve him. And our relationship with our work and with our serving has been distorted by the fall, by sin. Right now, we work too much and we make it an idol or we work too little. We're lazy. We, we lack the strength. Work can take a toll on our physical bodies. Lots of ways that we don't have the relationship with our work that we're supposed to. But work was created for us to enjoy, to enjoy God's presence. We will have incredible purpose in the kingdom of God and serve him. And so as we serve him here today, it's just a little taste. We worship out of delight, right? Not duty. If it's, if, it's, if it's all duty and not delight, we're not doing it right, okay? So we need to keep trying to work at that. It's a joy to work and to serve in the kingdom of God. We'll be satisfied as we, as we serve him. We'll be satisfied by the lamb in our position, which is in his presence. This is the story of the Bible. Our relationship with God and with others has been disrupted by the fall. We're all going back to the day when we will be in his presence. We will be with one another. We will be in community, purely, holy. We will be in the presence of Almighty God forever. And we'll be satisfied by the Lamb in our provision and our protection. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. Hunger and thirst has been a constant threat to human beings from the very beginning of time. I would venture to guess most of us in this room have never experienced food insecurity. Maybe you have. But for many people, this vision, wait, one day we're not, there's not going to be a lack of food? And there's going to be clean, enough clean water for everybody in our town or our village to drink? That would have been an incredible revelation. And it still is today for many people. That feels so far off. But that's the promise. One day there will be enough. We serve a God who owns it all, who out of the sheer power of his voice created everything from nothing, who owns everything, who controls all resources. His love and energy is inexhaustible. And he says, I will provide for you. I will care for you. I will protect you. We can't imagine it. Finally, we'll be satisfied by the Lamb in his leadership. His leadership. We're all longing for better leadership. Leadership is important. And none of us have ever experienced a truly good leader. Every political leader, every teacher, every coach, every pastor, every leader in your life has let you down and left you dissatisfied. Every single one of them. Even the ones you liked, there was always, well, I really like this, but I wish they would do this better. Or I wish, you know, you just wish for something better. In the kingdom, we'll be satisfied under the leadership of the Lamb, who is also the shepherd. What a paradox there, right? 
He's God and he's man. He's the sacrifice and the priest. He's the lamb and the lion. He's the lamb, but he's also the shepherd. (laughs) Finally, the compassionate, wise, humble, generous, loving leader our hearts have been longing for. We don't have to wait to submit to his leadership. We get that today. We just get a purified, exponential factor to all of the goodness is where we're headed. So the sixth seal brings us right up to the edge of history as we know it. What we expect in the seventh seal is the final coming of the kingdom of God. And again, these patterns are going to be repeated, right? We have seven seals, we're going to get seven trumpets, we're going to get seven bowls. These aren't all isolated events. It's kind of overlapping layers, different perspectives really on one set of events, I believe. We come to the seventh seal, and before it comes, there's silence in heaven for a half hour. What's that all about? I don't know. I don't know. If I did, I'd write a book. There are different thoughts and perspectives, but it's certainly, it's a pause. A defined period of time of of waiting. It says during that time, the prayers of the saints go up before the throne. Again, prayer is all over this vision because prayer matters. But there's, there's this sense of waiting before some kind of finality. And that's, that's ultimately where we find ourselves, in this pause, this waiting moment. I told you all already, we're in the end times. We don't know whether we're at the beginning or the middle or the end or the end of the end. We don't know. But there's a sense of urgency and I don't know exactly what Jesus had in mind by this pause here, but I think it's certainly helpful to us to receive it as, hey, there's, there's a defined amount of time of a waiting period, and then there's going to be something after that. And that's a sobering reality for all of us. Our lives on this earth are short. And whether the end of our life is going to be when we die or Jesus is going to come back before we die, there's an urgency and there's a finality to life. Life is short. One of the privileges that we have as pastors is that we walk with families when they experience the end of a loved one's life. And so because of that, we, we are part of, we lead and even sit in and participate in a disproportionate amount of funerals. And it's sobering. It's a reminder that life is short. And we have a decision to make. The question is, who can survive? Who can withstand the wrath of God? And the answer is fairly simple. The answer is those who have been sealed by the blood of the Lamb. And so that is a question posed to all of us. Have you been sealed? Have you surrendered? Have you turned away from your sin? to place your faith, have you placed all of your hope, not in yourself, not in anything else, have you placed your hope of becoming a new and better creation in Jesus Christ alone? Are you sealed in his blood? Are you longing to be satisfied by his leadership and his love and to serve him and to be a part of his eternal kingdom? And if you have been sealed, the question is, are you living now into that new kingdom reality? 
Because that's a daily adventure of finding ourselves with, with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in some other kingdom. And the goal, the process of our sanctification, of the process of being saved, is that we would more and more enter into the kingdom of God. That we would receive that kingdom. That that would be the operating system, the lens through which we view our lives on this earth, even as we long for the perfection of that reality. Who can withstand the wrath of God? Those who are sealed. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. And though it is overwhelming in scope, in detail, by the power of your Spirit, would you teach us those things that we need to know and understand? Would you help us to carry away from our quick journey through this book with great truths and understanding and theological vision that helps us to be faithful to the finish in our walk with you. And God, I pray that even today could be a day, a point of decision for those that you're speaking to who have this sense that their eternal destiny is, is unknown, is not secured. God, would you teach them? Would you help us as a community to show them what that looks like? Father, for all of us, would you continue to purify us and refine us until you should return again? Father, all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.